Welcome to my MACD life and powered by the Support Site Foundation. This podcast is about macular degeneration and the devastating impact it has on millions of people and their families every single day, 365 days a year. Our mission is simple, to bring hope, optimism, perspective, and education to our listeners. So tune in, buckle up, and put your listening ears on. Here are your hosts, Don Prawl and Sean Doyle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my MACD Life. I'm your co-host, Sean Doyle, professional speaker, trainer, and book author, and I'm here today with my co-host, the lovely and talented, the amazing, the incredible, the irreplaceable, Don Prawl, the founder and executive director of the Support Site Foundation and a visionary. Hey, Don. Hey, Sean. Hi, everyone. We're happy you've joined us. We're excited to bring you some great information, education, and inspiration. We really want to make a difference in the life of people who are suffering with MACD, and we call it My MACD Life. And Don, one other thing. What's that, Sean? We're We're going going to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) McDonough, I'm so excited about today's show. You're Super always excited exciting. about every show. I'm always excited. We've a great show. That's I right. love that about you. Well, thank you. I love that about you, too. We're very excitable people, but for a reason, <laughs> we've got a mission. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And you know who the guest is today? A very special guest. Incredible person. Smart. Genius. Visionary. Remember who today's guest is on today's show, Don? I really didn't look at the list, Sean. Who is it? It's Don Prawl. Oh, Sean. Oh, cut it out. Come on. She's a visionary. She's a genius. She's the founder. Sean. Sean, 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 Sean. Really? Anyway, in all seriousness, I think people get a lot out of your interview talking about your story, how you founded the Support Site Foundation. And I think they'll really get a lot of it. And of course, our buddies from Vespera will be stopping by to talk about some incredible technology, almost like science fiction. But it's today that people can use to really help with their macular degeneration. Let's roll it. All right. Support for today's My MACD Life podcast comes from Healthy Vision Association, Novartis, Vespero, Centric Bank, and Hinkelstein and Associates. Sean, this is that time in the episode or the show where we talk about what we've been thinking about. And, you know, it's our favorite time together, right? Sure is. Absolutely. I'm sure this is a topic that our audience and people out there think a lot about, and that is eating food. Yes. Yeah. With the holidays, we're in the middle of everything and, you know, it's always overindulgence. And so I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, diet is and healthy eating is really critical to living with macular degeneration. There are all kinds of foods that are eye healthy. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's something that people often don't think about. It seems like everywhere you go in a holiday, there's food everywhere. So what are some things maybe, Don? people should have more in their nutritional plan for eye health? Well, I think the kind of a general rule is heart healthy is eye healthy. Ah, that's a good one. And yeah, yeah, it keeps it, it keeps it simple. Hmm. And the other rule that's easy to follow is eat the rainbow. Eat the rainbow. That sounds fantastic. It almost sounds like a Skittles commercial. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of. <laughs> So what I mean by that is your plate or your bowl or whatever you're eating out of should be full of color. And that includes lots of dark leafy green veggies like Mm. collard greens, kale, cucumbers. It also should have oranges. That's apricots, cantaloupe. That's got lots of beta carotene, strawberries. But what a great tool. I mean, it's so simple just to say, am I to have lots of color on my plate? I mean, that makes it so much easier than having to make it complicated. So I like that idea. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people know it's just a well-known fact now about omega-3s. And omega-3s are fish oil. Mm. You know, that's essential 
to eye health, particularly if you have dry macular degeneration and really the only thing you can do right now because there's no treatments out there, uh, of course, 80, 85% of people have dry MACD. The really, the only thing you can do is, of course, not smoke mm. and exercise, healthy lifestyle and healthy diet. So, you know, those omega-3s, like not just the supplements, but also the kind of the fatty fish. You know, a lot of times people say to me, well, I eat tilapia a lot. Well, tilapia is good for you because it's a fish, but it's not as fatty like, say, a, a salmon or herring. So, you know, if you integrate that into your diet, two or three times a week, it's really good for your macular degeneration and for your eyes and your overall health. So a question that I would then immediately have is where do people go to find out about the right kind of diet to follow for, for healthy vision? Well, there's all kinds of resources out there. And of course, if you go to a nutritionist or a dietitian, or you live in a CCRC, you know, a continuing care retirement community, you can talk to the staff there nice. and look at the menu and, or you can go online. Uh, you can go to NEI. National Eye Institute mm. uh, .gov, or you can also, of course, go to the Support Site Foundation. We've got a lot of handouts and uh, you know fact sheets that you can print out, and we even have a healthy vision shopping list that's pretty handy. That's a great idea. Yeah, there's no reason why you can't enjoy your holidays, but also take care of your eyes at the same time. Absolutely, and you can do that year round. And it's yeah, good. Absolutely. These are good habits to get into, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as many of our listeners know, we have the MACD Life empowered by the Support Site Foundation. But I think what's important for our listeners to also understand is the Support Site Foundation has a founder and an executive director. And so I thought people would like to know a lot more about the Support Site Foundation and what it's all about. So today I have the privilege, the pleasure to interview my co-host, Don Prawl, who's also the executive director and the founder of the Support Site Foundation. So, Don, for our listeners who don't know, tell folks, what is the Support Site Foundation and what's it all about? Hi, Sean. It's always good to be with you. Good to be with you, my co-host and now interviewee, which, by the way, I know I had to twist your arm to do this, but this is really important, Don, for people to understand about you and about the Support Site Foundation. Well, thank you. The Support Site Foundation, or TSSF, is a 501c3 public charity whose mission is to save sight for millions of people who suffer from macular degeneration. That's kind of in a nutshell. And we do that through, well, in a couple ways. We do that through patient education programs. Mm -hmm. We accomplish our mission through patient advocacy. And we also fund critical research to find new treatments and eventually a cure for MACD. We are laser focused on macular degeneration. We don't do anything else. We don't do glaucoma. We don't do diabetic retinopathy. Not that those diseases of the eye are not really, really important, but other organizations focus on those. And that's what makes us different. We um, solely focused, we have a track record of being effective. We have a constituency, by and large, the majority of them either have macular degeneration have a loved one who had macular degeneration or or are in some way connected to the disease because it, it is one in four people. One in four. That's right. Over the age of 65 have some degree of or some stage of macular degeneration. So it's that huge and it's that real. And I, I guess I was surprised when I first got into this topic about how many people are affected. You know, we're talking about millions of people and their families. I think it's uh, it's much larger than a lot of people realize. It is. I mean, my mantra has always been, Sean, that this disease is bigger than all of us. Yeah. And for the Support Site Foundation, 
you know, we, we don't profess to be the end-all, be-all. We, we are smarter than that. We know that it's going to take a village, as they say, or, you know, a lot more than what we can do. But we are unabashed in our capacity to lead the way because somebody has to. And we're, you know, we're very boutique about it. There's lots of other organizations out there. Those are my peers, quite frankly. And, you know, I talk with all of them and they talk with me. I mean, it's, there's relationships out there that are really important in the bigger picture. And there's conflict out there in the data. Right. You know, some people might say, oh, there's only, I saw there's only 10 million people who have macular degeneration or 6 million. Well, my response to that is that this is also an underreported disease. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a silent disease, we, we say, because you'd be amazed at how many people and they've told me this, and I, I've witnessed it over the last uh, 11 or 12 years I've been hard at work doing this, who tell me, you know, I don't want to tell people I can't see because they might think less of me, or that might mean that I have to ask for help. And, and I guess my response to the numbers is, does it matter if it's 10 million or 6 million? It's still devastating to each individual life. You know, That's so it right. It doesn't really matter what the number is, even if it was one. It would matter because you could make a difference in one person's life, but we're talking in the millions, then it certainly is affecting so many people and their families. So I guess my question that I always think about, you know, when we talk about the Support Site Foundation, you being the executive director and the founder, you know, you have this vision, which I always really have admired. And so I guess the question is, what life path led you to this? What what inspired you or what led you to say? I'm going to I'm going to do something about this. What was the spark that led to that? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for the question. I appreciate your compliments too. They mean a lot. I wouldn't call it a spark, I would call it a raging forest fire. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz I tend to not do anything unless it's big. <laughs> a raging forest fire. There's a good analogy, yeah. <laughs> no, but it does say a lot about your passion. You know, so where did this passion come from? for MACD, for Support Site Foundation? Well, most of my career for decades was spent in in healthcare mm-hmm. uh, and also some in social services. So I've always been about, I mean, it's in my DNA to help people. It's in my DNA to help make the world a better place. And I don't say that in a way that is Pollyanna. I mean, I'm sincere about that. And most everyone who knows you me are. knows yep. that to be true. So, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, I uh, got a phone call out of the clear blue sky, literally, when I was walking along the beach in August. Uh, and it was an opportunity to run the Macula Vision Research Foundation hmm. at the time, which is the, you know, kind of the predecessor to the Support Site Foundation. And the founder, well, there were two founders, actually, co-founders, Karen Lotman and her, the late Herbert Lotman or Herbie, as they called him. And he called me out of the clear blue to ask me if I would be interested in becoming the executive director. Hmm. Fast forward, obviously, I took him up on the offer for lots of incredible reasons and appropriate reasons and really felt like, even though I didn't know much about the disease at the time, I knew this was an offer I couldn't refuse. And so I quickly became, surrounded myself with scientists, researchers, people who taught me what I know. And as a quick study, the details matter, the facts matter, of course, and presenting to people in a way that was scientific, even though I'm not a scientist, was important to me. But what really happened along that part of the journey was I started to meet people. And at the time, it was face-to-face. There was no COVID. Um, I started to meet people all over the country who live with macular degeneration. And that was profound. You saw the devastating impact of this disease. Right. Wow. 
made a profound, it actually changed my life because I started to think then about what do you do in the meantime? And so we created a program, the support site patient education advocacy program, which was already there when I took the job, but we changed the model and we shifted to what we call in the meantime. So if I'm going to live with this disease and it's going to slowly rob me of my precious vision, you know, how do I continue to live in a way that's independent? Mm. And that was it. That's, that's what did it for me. I was hooked. You were hooked and it turned from a spark into a raging forest fire. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well. And then uh, a quote from a person who has a lot of vision in more ways than one, as sight disappears, so does a person's connection to the world. And you may recognize that quote. You said that. So you said, as sight disappears, so does a person's connection to the world. Tell our listeners a little bit more about that quote. Because when I read it, I was just like, wow, that's so true. But I just wondered what that means to you. I mean, I know what it means to me, but what does it mean to you? Well, as a sighted person, and by the way, I'm very blessed with that, for now, anyway, you never know, life changes. That's how it was described to me. Mm. That's how, over the course of time, the hundreds of people that I would come in contact with, whether it was on the phone or in emails or face-to-face, and I would hear people's stories, you know, on a daily basis, and I'm talking about, I mean, I still do that. That's that's my day in the life, you know, as the founder and executive director of the Support Site Foundation. And it's my honor and privilege to be in those conversations because they're really special, each and every one of them. But that's was kind of my outcome in, you know, based on all those conversations. That when somebody loses their sight, they lose their connection to the world and try to help them. That's right. And that that impact of losing the connection to try to reestablish a way of them being able to connect with the world in different ways, but yet still connect. That's right. And that's that's really, in, in a nutshell, the premise of our mission. So for those listening, uh, a couple questions. Uh, what kind of research is the Support Site Foundation doing right now? that people might find exciting. And, you know, we, we often talk on this program, the MACD Life, about hope. What kind of research are you currently involved with that might give people reason to have hope for either a treatment or a cure for MACD? Well, not being a researcher, I, I need to, you know, mention that to the audience that, you know, I'm not a doc, medical doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm a businesswoman. You just play on TV. That's right. But I know a lot about it. And we're really, really excited about the latest research project that we are funding. And it's related to gene replacement therapy. Wow. There's a lot, yep, there's a lot of buzz out there about the two ways that most people in this industry, if you will, most scientists and, and docs do believe that the pathway to a cure or a significantly different treatment, because there's not a treatment right now for dry MACD, by the way, other than to air its vitamins and exercise and kind of in lifestyle right. and environmental factors. So there's a lot of buzz about gene replacement therapy, and also stem cell therapy. So the latest project that the Support Site Foundation funded, and we just announced it, and we're really psyched about it, is a genetic study. And uh, I don't want to get too involved in the, you know, description of the project. It is on the website, supportsite.org, and feel free to to visit that and you'll learn more about the research that we're involved in. We're also looking at funding some low vision research. Uh, There's some projects on the table right now that are experts in our board uh, considering. So stay tuned. You'll hear more about those too. What I love about what you just said is, you know, there are are some foundations or charities that, that talk about it, but, you know, are they 
doing it. And what I love the fact, and I just want to emphasize that you're actually funding research. You're actually funding the research right now, right, to to do that research. So I think that that's incredible that you're actually funding the research to to move this forward. And so people could go to the site, supportsite.org to learn more about it. And two last questions. People that are listening and say, wow, I, I love this. This is fascinating. This is something I really want to get involved with because either I have MACD or my I have a friend that has MACD or I just want to help people. How can people get more involved with our mission? Well, the best way to get in- involved is to go, as you said, to supportsite.org. Supportsite.org. S-U-P-P-O-R-T-S-I-G-H-T.org. Or call us at our 800 number. That's right on the site. Right? That's on the site. That's right. Yep. And get involved by making a donation. It all adds up. No sizes, no donations too small or too big. Uh, we are a public charity and a 501c3, so we rely on the support of our listeners and others to move the needle on the research and to continue to feed that programming that we that people out there so desperately need. We are a credible resource for really accurate patient information, caregiver information, and also my MACD life is not only a podcast, but that my vision for this program is to also create a place where people can share their stories. And I know later on in the uh, show, we're going to talk more about that. That's right. So a question you may be a little surprised by, or maybe be humbled by a little bit, but is this, is this part of Don Prawl's legacy? I mean, at the end of your life, do you want to look back on the Support Site Foundation and say this was a really important part of Don Prawl's legacy? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I I don't really think about that a lot. Um, well, thank you, you. I just know that, you know, my hope for people, my wish is that whatever little tiny bit I can do, as founder and executive director of the Support Site Foundation and formerly Immaculate Vision Research Foundation, any little bit that I can do and that the organization can do along with the board and the whole cast of characters and like yourself and others to make a difference for people who are losing their precious vision. I just hope that to borrow the phrase I used earlier, that we can move that needle because if we stay focused on it like we are and we will, I know we can make a difference and I want to be part of that. I want that to happen. Well, Don, I want to thank you for your time today. Number one, number two, I want to thank you for the millions of people. You're, you're having an impact on millions of people's lives. I want to thank you for that. I'd also want to thank you for letting me be part of this because I'm very honored and privileged to be part of making a difference in people's lives by talking about and educating and research and information about MACD because you're changing lives, Don Prawl, and we really appreciate that. Thank you, Sean. That means a lot. My MACD life. Hey, Christine Petty here, coming to you from my tiny little studio apartment in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. So apologies for the noise that comes through the window whenever it feels like it. I am here to just share with you my adventures in having a visually challenged life. It's my transition time, I would say. I am losing vision in my remaining good eye. So I am starting to learn about different things that are going to be incorporated into my life. But I do have some stories from my previous experiences with visual challenges, specifically some of the surgeries I've had. I think the first big surgery I had was a detached retina. And I was doing, <laughs> I was doing the play Noises Off in community theater. And I played the woman who always lost her contact lenses. So there I was on the stage squinting It was a very um, profound acting choice I made by squinting when my contact lenses were falling out. And there I was doing my comic squinting, and 
I noticed there was a spot in my eye. And I thought, well, what's that? And it got darker and bigger and darker and bigger and bigger and darker. By the end of the play, I was concerned. So the next day I went to the, went to the doctor and she looked at my test results and she came in in a total sweat, hyperventilating. And she said, um, okay, you have a detached retina. And I went, a detached retina. All right. Well, I've heard of that. So at least we can give this a name. I, I have a show tonight, another performance of Noises Off. So how, uh, how soon can we take care of this? And she went, no. Oh, no, no. Oh, no show. No show tonight. You have to go into the city right now. You have to have surgery. I went, oh, I did my best Lucy Ricardo. Ooh. My parents drove me down to the city. And I'm, you know, you're resilient when you're in your 20s. You're all all rubbery and elastic and not just on the outside, but, you know, emotionally too. And I had every reason to believe that everything would be fine. The doctor saw me and he said that I had to have surgery and they would do it the next morning. I was going right away into the hospital and I sat, I remember I was in the hospital and the night before the surgery, they bandaged both eyes. I can't remember why they did it. Uh, something about resting them. I don't know, but this was in the eighties. Things were different then. They bandaged both eyes and I was alone in my hotel room, my hotel room, <laughs> hardly my hospital room. And I was okay about being half blind in the eye and this big black veil descending down upon me that hadn't bothered me all day. I had confidence and faith, but it was lying in the bed bandaged that made me feel like a really bad Betty Davis movie. Kids ask your parents who that is or Google her. And so there I just sat. And if it wasn't so funny, I would have laughed because it was sad. It was very sad and lonely and it was dark and it got darker. And <laughs> it's just a really bad melodrama. The melodrama of it made me laugh. And um, the surgery went fine. But P.S. It was six days in the hospital, six days in the hospital. I mean, nowadays, come on, nowadays, you could have a baby, you could have an internal organ removed and a toe taken off, and you'd still be home in time for uh, Letterman. Or no, that's how old I am for The Tonight Show. Um, I've been watching Letterman, so I said Letterman. But anyway, it's just a different time. And, you know, if nothing else, when you consider that, you, um, you just have to be grateful if you're suffering from any of these things nowadays, at how things have moved so rapidly, so very rapidly. I, I met a woman who was a nurse who told me that they hated having the, uh, there was a nurse a long time ago, even before my detached retina, they used to have to lie you in bed with sandbags on either side of your head and make sure you didn't move. And, you know, it evolved to the time when I had my detached retina. And so it was better when I had it. And it's so much better now because I've had subsequent detached retinas, and I'm here to tell you how much easier and quicker and probably safer it is. And so there's always something to be grateful for, particularly when it comes to these amazing uh, people in medicine and in research who come up with this stuff. And the other surgery I wanted to tell you about was after that, years later, I, because my eyes are not um, equal, I have a dominant eye and a, a weaker eye, I have an eye turn, and so I went to have a strabismus surgery to just amend the eye turn a bit. And I went to Dr. Renee Richards, who was a very famous for, um, for being one of the first uh, transgender transsexuals, having one of the first gender um, surgeries. And I went in to talk to her, and I was going, oh, interesting hairdo, nice sweater set, cute string of pearls, but, you know, I mean, not even nail polish. Why isn't she wearing... I'm, I was like looking over her outfit, okay, and judging her on her outfit because I knew she was once a man. And I was just wondering, you know, from a man's perspective or somebody who was once a man, how did she choose to express herself now that she was finally a woman? And I thought very conservatively, okay, but I thought no nail polish, really? I mean, I mean, why not? And then I went, wait a minute, nail polish? Those nails are really short too. Why doesn't she have any nail... Oh, oh my God. She's a surgeon. She's going to cut me open. Wait a minute. What do those hands look like? What do those nails look like? Are they clean? Are they nimble? What are they doing? How's she picking up the pencil? Does she have secure hands? Does she know? You know, suddenly I totally, you know, just learned to refocus on that which was important. And then it reminded me of a doctor that I'd met somewhere else who was also a surgeon. And I thought, wait a minute, he had really big hulky hands. Could he cut me open properly? So anyway, those are just two of my ridiculous 
surgery stories. And uh, as we move forward, we're going to talk about all sorts of silly things, important things, emotional things, angry things, you name it. Um, I'm feeling them all. As I, as I said, I, as I transition into a life filled with many more visual challenges. So I will see you next time from my little studio apartment here in New York City. This is Christine Petty. So this next segment of the show is something we call Trivia Town. And Don and I are co-mayors of Trivia Town, by the way, in case you want to visit. So on Trivia Town, our goal is to kind of just throw around some trivia questions for curiosity and stimulation and entertainment. So this one's a pretty interesting one. What U.S. Navy fashion statement went away? And I can't believe it's this year, uh, 1998. So I mean, when I read this question, I'm like, 1998, really? So what Navy fashion statement went away in 1998? I got to tell you, this is an absolute no-brainer because I'm a fashionista and I refuse. Really? Yes, I am. And I refuse to let this go away. In fact, I believe it never goes away. It just takes another breath. The answer is bell bottoms. Bing, 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 bing. Wow. Nice job, Dawn. Very good. I always thought that sailors looked ridiculous with those giant bell bottoms. I mean, I love bell bottoms, but I just thought sailors looked very odd with these gigantic bell bottoms walking around and those white bell bottoms. Did you ever you ever think that yourself or did you like the look on the sailor with the bell bottom? I never thought that before, Sean, because, you know, I think, hmm. well, my dad was in the Navy, so maybe that's why. Oh, okay. It's part of your life then. That's right. So, you know, sometime this week when you run into a friend or a colleague, you can stump them with this trivia question about a Navy fashion statement that went away in 1998. I'm surprised it went away so so late in the game. So that's the story of bell bottoms, I guess, huh? Yeah, I love this trivia, Sean. It's really fun playing it with you, too. I, I'm, I'm getting a kick out of it. It's a lot of fun. Hey, folks. May 2021 be joyful, healthful, peaceful, hopeful, and kindful. That's our mantra. This year, more than ever, we have to come together. You know, we need to love each other more and hate each other less. So here's what we're asking you to do. We couldn't make it easier. Pick up your phone, record yourself saying, May 2021, be joyful, healthful, peaceful, hopeful, and kindful. It's that easy. Post that on all your social media. Share it on all your social media. Hashtag Full Hearts 2021. This is your chance to be featured on this show. We're active on all social media except for Twitter. Thanks for joining in. Today, the assistive technology, uh, our folks at Vespera are going to be talking about the Ruby family, Sean. The Ruby family. You know, I... I knew Ruby family when I was a little kid. I'm, I don't think that's the family we're talking about, is it? That's the Ruby family? No, no, no. These are uh, assistive technology oh, devices. the products. What? Yeah, yeah. So what, yeah. what does the Ruby family of products do from our fine sponsors at Vespera? Well, they're in a category called portable electronic magnifiers. Hmm. So there's, a, there's like four models or so. And, you know, a lot of the folks that I talk to have these and they use them for everyday tasks. You know, they're the next step above like a regular basic old fashioned magnifying glass. Wow, that's amazing. And so I guess that tool would be really helpful for things like reading your mail or looking at pictures, right? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. Like you turn them on, they charge up kind of like your smartphone. So they're easy to use. They're real simple and they have, you know, magnification, contrast, everything. So it makes you know the simple tasks not so cumbersome. That's phenomenal. I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah, I think folks are going to learn a lot from the Ruby family, so to speak. There we go. All right. 
right. Well, good afternoon. My name is Bill Kilroy. I'm Vispero's Senior Sales Director for the Northeast, and I'm joined by my colleague, Mike Wood, Strategic Accounts Manager for Education for Vispero. Hey, everybody. Mike and I are very pleased to be on this podcast, My MACD Life, and we hope to tell you a little bit more about our organization and the types of tools we produce. Vispero is the world's largest assistive technology for the visually impaired. Our field of specialty is assistive technology. In our world, for Vispero, that means serving people with our products who are blind or low vision. Throughout this podcast, we hope to highlight key products in our line that can enhance people's lives, and we look forward to speaking with you. Today's featured product is actually a family of products that we're going to highlight. It's called the Ruby, and the Ruby is a group of four different handheld video magnifiers. The reason we're very excited to talk a little bit about the Ruby is it is a Freedom Scientific product that when it debuted, it was by far and away an industry changer. It was a device that came out and our 4.3 inch unit or our Ruby Classic, as we refer to it, you know, came out. It was unique in that it could be stand and hand, but it was also color coded in its controls. So you had uh, red, yellow, green, blue buttons that were also tactile so that if you were going to raise, you know, magnification, I could increase or decrease the magnification by, you know, knowing the color or by knowing the feel of that particular button. The other thing with the Ruby in the class of Ruby is that it can be used as a stand magnifier where it's just sitting on the table or the work surface in front of you or three of the four units have a handheld grip so that you can hold it up and you can basically move it up like a regular magnifying glass. There is, just to go through the line, there is the Ruby Classic, which has a 4.3-inch screen, the Ruby HD, which is 4.3-inch screen, but also is an HD high-definition camera. There's our most popular device, which is the 5-inch Ruby XL HD and the Ruby 7, a 7-inch unit, and it's the only unit that uh, does not have a handle. You can still hold this one up, The unique part of the Ruby 7 is that its camera is actually not fixed in its position. It can actually rotate. So I can be looking at something that's on my work surface or I can rotate it and look at myself again. If I'm buttoning a button, tying a tie, putting on makeup, I can get a little personal viewing. I can also rotate that camera to see things in front of me or or basically behind me. It gives you a little bit of distance mode capabilities, what I call McDonald's mode, where I could feel comfortable walking into a McDonald's, standing at the counter that is about, I don't know, 10 to 12 feet away, look up at the menu with my Ruby 7 and be able to read the information on that menu and then convey my order to the uh, attendant there. Like other magnification devices, you know, range of magnifications, anywhere from just under 1x magnification to on the 7, I think we go as high as 22x, as well as a range of video enhancement modes for color combinations and also having the line markers and masking capabilities. Mike, I'm rambling on about these rubies, but tell me, you know, how it's used with the kids in education and with with what you see out in the field. Yeah, uh, you know, the rubies are, as you said, tried and true products. Uh, The XLHD being the bestseller, I love and and everyone that uses it loves the fact that it sits at a nice ergonomic level. So when you do have it sitting on flat, you know, flat surface, such as a book or a brochure or something like that, it sits at a nice angle. So you're not leaning over it and kind of stretching your neck or arching your back. And that makes it really nice. Uh, those guidelines and masking that you mentioned are huge. People love that for tracking, especially in the education market. You know, it keeps you on track on your line as you're reading a book. Uh, and on the Ruby 7, I find a lot of people like the fact that it has an HDMI, an input jack, but it actually does HDMI output. So it sends the video, whatever you're seeing on that Ruby 7, to whatever device you plug the other end of the HDMI cable into. So I've had customers that have plugged that into a 65-inch television, and they're able to view what they see on the Ruby on this giant 65-inch screen. So, you know, They're very versatile, portable. Uh, That XLHD fits in a shirt pocket really nicely. And um, yeah, they're just great products. 
Well, and, and those are the rubies. What, what I should also point out, and, you know, the rubies are from the Freedom Scientific Division. You know, we have two other divisions, Enhanced Vision and Optelect, that manufacture handheld magnifiers as well. Enhanced Vision does the Pebble line as well as the Amigos. And we've highlighted in an earlier session the compacts from Optelec. So we've got a nice continuum of products through all the Bush Sparrow companies. And to learn more about the Ruby line or any of the, the Sparrow low vision devices that we've been talking about on My Mac D Life, visit our website at www.vispero.com or call one of our customer service representatives at 1-800-444-4443. They can, they can learn a little bit about what you need and connect you with a local resource where you might be able to test these devices in your home. So thank you for tuning in. And until the next podcast, have a great day. Here's another practical tip for living with macular degeneration. Decrease glare. And I'm sure you're aware of this. You probably live it every day. But glare can really further reduce your vision and can cause eye fatigue. So first of all, decrease the glare from lighting, from windows, and from the sun. And as you know, amber or yellow tints, because when we wear the glasses, right, those those tinted glasses, can really cut the glare and enhance contrast. So those are a couple of things to think about to make it easier for your daily life. You're listening to my Mac D Life, empowered by the Support Sight Foundation. And the Support Sight Foundation is empowered by a board. This is a board of talented and dedicated people who are committed and passionate about the mission of the foundation. And the mission is to save the sight of millions of people and their families who suffer from Mac D. And we'd like you to learn more about the people who really are dedicated and committed to the mission of the foundation. And we're committed to saving the sight of millions of people and their families who suffer from MACD. Let's have a listen. Hi, John. First of all, it's wonderful to be with you today on my MACD life. And I just want to start by telling everyone who's listening, and hopefully it's the whole wide world, that we are very grateful we being the Support Site Foundation, because my MACD Life podcast is empowered by the Support Site Foundation. And we are extremely grateful to have you as a board member. And thank you so much for your leadership and for your commitment and dedication to the mission of the foundation and to helping the millions of people out there uh, who are living every day with macular degeneration. Just want to start with that and thank you for for joining us today. I appreciate your kind words, Dawn, and look forward to continuing to support the Support Site Foundation and moving into the future, hopefully work with you to do very good things. Great. Thanks. So without further ado, how about if we dive right in? I'm thinking today it would be a good thing for folks who are listening to get to know your story. It's a powerful story, and it's best told to others by you. So where I think would be great for you to start is explain to the listeners your visually impaired, your uh, how your life was dramatically changed when you and your family got the news that you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. And while that's not macular degeneration, which is the focus of the Support Site Foundation and certainly the topic here, it's also a disease of the retina. So there are many, many similarities in terms of people who live with the vision loss. So why don't you start from the top, so to speak, and tell folks about what it was like to get the news from the doctor. Okay. Thanks, Donna. Let me start by saying when I deal with older folks today, I conveyed to them that the condition I have, retinitis pigmentosa, abbreviated RP, is very similar to macular degeneration in terms of the the impact and the way it progresses. So RP is an inherited disease. It's passed from mother to son, and 
the male child has a 50% chance of getting the disease, at least the genetics that are involved in the family I have. So I have one brother that does not have it. I have my youngest brother has the same condition. And I have a sister, and of course, it, it does not pass to girls. So I was unusual in that I was diagnosed at an early age at the Massachusetts Ear Institute, like about six years old, because I had some trouble seeing at night. So my mother took me there for an eye exam, and it was a specialty clinic in the Boston area. So I was diagnosed at six years old, and this was back in the 50s. And back then, you can imagine, little was known about RP and the limitations it had. So I had, I was like a specimen where I had all kinds of doctors sticking their, I think, their light into my eyes and making all kinds of comments. And the depressing thing was here Here I was, a kind of a six-year-old kid, and the doctors would, would say, oh, you're going to be blind someday, you know, so you need to compensate for that or you need to figure out what to do. But, you know, at six years old, what, what do you do? You, you know, what do you think? So You're supposed to be flying kites and, and doing and playing jacks and all those things that in the 50s that kids did, right? Marbles with your friends. <laughs> right. And from my perspective, I had pretty decent central vision. I had very little at the onset night vision and limited peripheral vision. But I sort of didn't let that stop me. So I proceeded through grade school, high school. I played sports. In fact, at one point I was discouraged from playing sports, in particular football, because of my vision and the fear that maybe you would get hurt. But I went through grammar school and high school kind of pretending I could see normal Although my close friends knew that I did have an eye condition. And as teenagers, you know how sensitive teenagers are to anything and everything. It, it was kind of uh, an issue. Were they mean to you? Did they pick on you? Generally not. Generally not. Especially the folks that were my friends. They generally not. Someone who didn't know me. If I would trip over something or do something dumb because of my vision, you know, might kind of make fun of it or whatever. But I kind of learned to live with that. You let it roll off your back. Oh. Yes. Yes. Because there was no other choice at that point in time. And the concept, I, I had no idea of what the concept of you're going to be blind means. Be, because, as I said, my central vision was good. And since I never had good night of peripheral vision, I didn't know what good night of peripheral vision was. So I really didn't know what I was missing. So the good news through all of that is since I had a peripheral field of less than 20%, I was considered legally blind. So my parents, who both were blue-collar workers, lived in a Boston suburb, used that opportunity to contact the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and they were able to provide funding for my college education. Now, back wow. then, the criteria were that you had to go to school in Massachusetts, but I decided that I wanted to go to Notre Dame. So we convinced the commission that they would pay for me to go to Notre Dame. Otherwise, I never would have went. So... I, I went to Notre Dame the first time I ever got on the airplane. My parents took me to, to the airport. I got on the airplane back then. There was no 9-11, no security, no whatever. Walked me to the gate. I'd never been out of New England. So I got on this plane and went to Chicago and then changed planes and went to South Bend, Indiana. Here I was in the middle of nowhere. 
at 17, not knowing anyone, and essentially being legally blind. Was it scary? Yes, yes. I was probably too naive to think how scary it was, but I I survived, especially the freshman year was the most difficult, just making the adjustment. And on top of that, I was majoring in aeronautical engineering. Oh, is that all? Yeah. It wasn't like I had an easy breezy, you know, set of classes. So anyway, made it through, graduated, decided to stay and get my master's degree, which I which I did at Notre Dame. And I went through the university with no special adaptation for my visual impairment because back then accessibility in the ADA didn't even exist. So there was no compensation or extra time for tests or anything like that. But I survived. Then I went to work. I got my first job. I worked for a couple of years for the government in Dayton, Ohio, as an engineer designing material handling systems, decided I couldn't be a government employee for the rest of my life. What was your vision like at that time? Was it changing rapidly or had it kind of stabilized or did you just kind of ignore it and just, you know, get through it? So back then it was stable from the standpoint that it wasn't very good, but it was stable. So my corrected vision was about 2050, 2070. And my night vision was very poor, but with enough lights around campus, I could manage, you know, to get around without killing myself. (laughs) And my peripheral vision was just my peripheral vision. So, you know, if I tripped on something, I tripped on something. I just kind of kind of dealt with it. So talk to us about, like, what you're describing is so amazing. It's just almost like you, you know, what an example of adversity and just kind of powering through it, you know, at such a young age. And as you mentioned, perhaps your naivete was a benefit. So fast forward. So you, you're very well educated. You, you know, I'm assuming you continue to access healthcare and, you know, ophthalmology as needed or maybe not. But so fast forward to now you're, you have your first job or two. You're, you know, you're in your maybe mid thirties. So what's it like then with living with your RP? Yeah, so that started to become a critical time in my life, to be honest with you. So after my second job was at in Pittsburgh with the Westinghouse Electric Company in the area of commercial power. So after working there as an engineer for about five years and doing detailed work, and at times I'd go hide in a conference room if I had to read prints, real small drawings with a magnifying glass so I could read them and no one would see me. And so after about five years, I progressed into management. And so that eliminated the need for me to do very detailed engineering work and redrawings to that extent. It was more supervision and reading normal text. And that kind of thing. And then shortly after that, personal computers started to show up in corporations. First, as shared among people. Secondly, then, as a manager, I had my own IBM XT with a 10 meg hard drive. (laughs) And everyone thought that, that that was great. So that kind of puts it in perspective. But the, the advantage that helped me extend my ability to continue to be efficient in the workplace was the contrast on the screens. And the screen, the contrast was better than a written piece of paper. And the text on the screen was bigger. I was just going to say, we all know those are two critical things that help people with low vision, and that is contrast and magnification. So you kind of, you know, going from paper 
to even uh, the very first, you know, computer was like, that was a step in the right direction for low vision. We never think about it like that, but it had to have been. It was almost like it was accessibility immediately. It, yeah. it was, but it wasn't called accessibility. And one thing I did do that was helpful is I was able to get a bigger monitor. Having a bigger monitor, everything was bigger. You know, the print was bigger just because it had a bigger space to put it on. But back then, and we were still using DOS, and there weren't the accessibility features that you have in software today. But it still was a plus. Well, yeah, because they weren't they weren't thinking about that. They didn't do that for accessibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. There was nothing in terms of accessibility. So finally, things caught up to me because I traveled a lot on airplanes, whatever, around the country for my job. And it got to the point where between traveling and trying to be efficient at work, I couldn't do my job effectively anymore. So I contacted the Office of Vocational Rehab that's part of the state of Pennsylvania and worked with them to enter a rehab program at the Greater Pittsburgh Guild for the Blind. And when I first went, it was kind of interesting because they said, oh, okay, we got the six-month program and you got to leave work for six months and you'll stay in a dorm right there at the facility, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, number one, I'm working, so I can't be gone for six months and number two, we'll have to work out some, you know, part-time program. So I did what I call the accelerated program. And the Greater Guild for the Blind were extremely accommodating. So I went, I'll never forget this. So I went on July 4th. I get confused in the year, but it was in the early 90s. And I finished on Labor Day, and I went three weeks for four days a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, a few more weeks, three days a week. And then I finished up going two days a week, Friday and Saturday, and continued to work. As I said, I was on the accelerated program. Nothing you do has been, sounds like, the traditional path. And it, it's it's really inspiring to hear these stories throughout your entire life where you just, and how I would explain it, is just put your head down and just did it. And you didn't let your vision issues, no matter what age, get in your way. And I think that's really an important message that the audience and people listening and Anyone needs to understand. So the best thing I did was go to the rehab program and take advantage of the services were available. And that helped me maintain my independence. It was, to be honest, a a really a mental thing to get over as much as a physical thing. Walking into work the first time with a white cane, you know, was, was difficult. But the attitude was this hey, I've done what I need to do to be productive. If someone or a colleague or a client has a problem with that, that's their problem, not my problem, because I can continue to function and do my thing and contribute and whatever. So fast forward, I finished my career up at Westinghouse and decided that I needed to embark upon something to keep me busy, and I wanted to do that someplace in the blindness field. So I started by becoming a board member of BVRS in Pittsburgh. You're giving back. Right, exactly. And I felt I had a lot to give back, having, one, experienced it, and two, having gone through the corporate world corporate management ladder and left as a vice president of engineering. So I felt I had a lot to give back. And through my involvement in the board, I ended up having another opportunity as the interim CEO of the Pennsylvania Association for the Blind, which is where I came in contact with Don. 
And I did that for two years. And now I am working with Don on the support site foundation board, as well as the BVRS board. And I'm kind of waiting for things to pan out with the pandemic so I can begin to pursue whatever my third career will be, hopefully, <laughs> in the blindness and, and vision area. So you just don't stop, which I think, and you, it sounds like you've never stopped. You've just kept going. And, you know, what I really love about your story is you tell it with with such grace and ease. And, you know, if people did not know that this was your struggle, I'm going to call it, you just certainly don't act like or have lived your life as if it's a struggle. It's just part of your life. And I think that's a really important message to convey to people who maybe have just been diagnosed with macular degeneration or are low vision and that not to let it get the best of you, no matter what your age. Would would you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. I kind of akin it to decisions I had to make where I said to myself, okay, you can do two things. You can sit on the corner and sell pencils for the rest of your life. You kind of an analogy, some blind people in the past, or you can deal with it. And I made the decision, obviously, to deal with it, which is the right decision. And I think with the technology that's out there today and the organizations like the Support Site Foundation, it's in everyone's best interest to maximize what they can do with their vision impairment in order to maintain independence and to maintain a quality of life that that they're used to. There's just so many opportunities and so much technology out there today to kind of sit in a corner and feel sorry for yourself is not the right thing to do. So, John, you epitomize that. And quite frankly, it's really not just inspiring, but motivating. And I love your attitude. Your life story is really one about overcoming obstacles. It's about attitude. It's about empowerment. And like you said, making choices. You accessed community resources that were available to you. You pleaded your case. You you and your parents advocated for you so that you could get a great education in Notre Dame. You know, you sought the health care you needed from a very, very early stage and good for your, God bless your parents, you know, because like you said back then, very little, if anything, was known. And certainly they took you to probably one of the most premier institutions in the country, if not the world at the time, Mass Ioneer. You know, many of our listeners, you know, certainly recognize that name. And you really took all the steps that, by the way, do you agree that this is the advice to give people who are listening? You know, follow that path and you need to advocate for yourself no matter what the situation. What do you think of that? Absolutely. I mean, it's important to advocate for yourself so that you can maintain independence. And it's also important psychologically to cross that boundary that says, okay, I have a visual impairment. I need to deal with it. That was one of the most difficult mental boundaries that I had to cross. Once I crossed that line, then it was, okay, watch out. Don't, don't get in my way. There's all kinds of technology out there. There's all kinds of opportunities, and the sky's the limit. But in order to cross that divide, you need to cross that divide. That's the one piece of advice I, I want to say to everyone is, you know, make the decision and go for it. Because if you don't, you're going to end up sitting in a corner probably for the rest of your life. Well, I'm going to start calling you Don't Stop Me Now, John, 
with affection. And I can't think of a better way to close our conversation today for folks who are listening on that, you know, kind of upbeat, very sage, very sound advice from someone whose entire life has been spent figuring out how to cross that divide. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for who you are, for what you've done and what you're going to do and what we're going to do together. We couldn't be more thankful to have you on our team. And thank you for joining us today. Well, you're more than welcome. And I'm so pleased to have been involved with the Support Site Foundation and been invited to join the board. So going forward, as I previously said, we should do a lot of great things together. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We're really glad you're here. Please come back. May 2021 be joyful, healthful, peaceful, hopeful, and kindful. Yeah, and it's definitely a privilege and a pleasure. And remember, for more information, please go to mymacdlife.org. We have all sorts of resources and info there for patients who have MACD and their families. And remember to join us next time on My MACD Life. This program is empowered by the Support Site Foundation. The Support Site Foundation mission is to save sight for millions of people who suffer from age-related macular degeneration, AMD, and lose their precious vision. As a 501c3 public charity, our goal is to provide patient education and access to low vision resources to help individuals, families, and caregivers whose lives are severely impacted by AMD. We place a high priority on connecting with people, their families, and loved ones who live with the daily struggle of impaired vision. The Support Site Foundation funds innovative research projects conducted by the top scientists in the field who are on a path to discover effective new tools, technology, and treatments for people like you with vision loss. The Support Site Foundation, supportsite.org, S-U-P-P-O-R-T-S-I-G-H-T.org, or call us at 888-681-8773 and connect with us on social media. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on My MACD Life, the podcast with a vision to bring hope, optimism, perspective, and education to our listeners. For more information and many great, incredible resources, visit MyMACDLife.org. This program is supported by amazing listeners like you. During the season of giving, please consider a donation to keep our mission moving forward. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep living with hope.